Well, I've uh, titled this sermon, um, what have I titled this sermon? Uh, the Choice is Yours, Part 2. And so last week I uh, had planned on preaching all these verses together, uh, but then I decided to split it up. And so last week was The Choice is Yours, just in terms of thinking about uh, the narrow road. Uh, and then this week, The Choice is Yours, just in terms of thinking about teachers and, and who are the teachers that, uh, that we invite uh, to lead us and to guide us along that path in this life. And so we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 15 through 20. It's page number 1,506. I hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, continuing to teach his disciples and to conclude his sermon, goes on to say, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This is the word of the Lord. So when you have a question about something in the Bible, about what the Bible teaches, where do you go? for an answer. So if you had a theological question, who's somebody that you would trust to give you an answer that reflects accurately what the Bible teaches? If you did an internet search to find those answers, which websites would you trust? What books, what writers, what speakers would you put your confidence in? If you had a question about Christian living, Whether that's parenting or marriage, um, whether that's guilt and shame and depression, where would you look to find out accurately what the Bible says about how to live as a Christian in light of those realities? What if you move away from here to a place where there's not a Christian Reformed church or not a denomination that you are familiar with? What criteria would you have in your mind in terms of deciding which church you should attend? But even within denominations now, we have to be careful. There can be a broad diversity of opinion about theological and cultural topics, and some of that can be good, But how do we discern when those differences of opinion become outside of the boundaries of historic Christian belief and practice? One of the questions before our denomination right now is whether the Christian tent is big enough for those who affirm monogamous same-sex relationships, or if we've come to a point where there are actually two different religions operating within our denomination. How do we know what hills to die on 
And how do we know when it's okay to agree to disagree? We obviously won't be able to answer all of those questions this morning, but I ask them because these are the kinds of questions Jesus seems to think it's important for us to have answers to. Last week, we looked at what Jesus says about the narrow gate and the narrow road, and we said that both are narrow because God has the right to tell us what we are to believe and how we are to behave. And God has given us his spirit and his word to guide us. But here's the question for this morning. Who gets to interpret his word? Who gets to say if his spirit is speaking a fresh new word for today, as some would say it is? Who gets to define God's standard of belief and behavior that fits on the narrow road? And who do we trust to tell us how God feels about people who fail to live up to that standard, as we all do? So given that, it makes perfect sense that the very next thing Jesus would say after commanding us to enter through the narrow gate and to remain on the narrow road is to warn us about false teachers. Because if there's one thing that will keep us from entering the narrow gate or pull us off of the narrow road, it's entrusting ourselves, our heart and our mind to false teachers. So how are we supposed to know a false teacher? Well, to answer that question this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, the reality of false teachers. Second, we're going to look at how to recognize false teachers. And finally, the reason the gospel must be central. So first, the reality of false teachers. The first reality of false teachers is that there are false teachers. No matter how big or how small one believes the Christian tent to be, there are boundaries to that tent. This is exactly what Jesus means when he says, watch out for false prophets. Now a prophet in this context is anybody who claims to speak for God. This could be someone who claims to receive direct revelation from God, which is what we normally associate with the idea of a prophet, or just someone who claims to know and understand and teach the Bible. When Jesus spoke these words, a prophet was thought to be one of the most trustworthy sources of spiritual truth. That's not necessarily the case today, especially in uh, Reformed churches. But even the scriptures prepare us to go from prophets to teachers. Thirty years after Jesus spoke these words, the apostle Peter wrote this. He said, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And so the point is this. When Jesus says false prophets here, he's talking about anyone who claims to speak on behalf of God. Whether they are a false prophet who receives direct revelation from God, or whether they are a false teacher who claims to know and understand and teach the Bible, as Peter calls them, regardless of what they are or what they call themselves, 
Jesus is warning us about people who will claim authority to teach and explain the things of God, except they will be wrong. They will be wrong. Their so-called prophecies and their teaching and their explanations of the Bible will send you down the wide road that leads to destruction. And Jesus is telling us this because he wants us to be more concerned about this than we typically are. Uh, The other night, my wife and I watched a new movie called 13 Lives. I recommend it. Uh, It's about these, um, it's a true story. It got national headlines about uh, four years ago. And it's about these 12 Thai soccer players and their coach who all get trapped inside a cave during monsoon season in Thailand. Uh, They were in there and they were exploring the cave. The monsoon rains came several weeks early, trapped them inside. And it wasn't until the 11th day they were in there that these awesome expert British divers found them in the back of that cave, which was great and really exciting. They found them. The only problem is, how are you supposed to get them out? Because even if you bring them food, they're going to run out of oxygen inside that cave long before the monsoon season ends. Now, I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but there's only one way out of that cave. There's only one way out. And if your teenage son were trapped inside that cave, you would want to know what the only way out of that cave is. And you would want to know who is the true teacher and who is the false teacher. So you would probably be doing your own research, reading books and journal articles all about cave diving, monsoons, and how long oxygen lasts inside a cave. You would have all the probabilities worked out so you would know your son's chance of survival. And all of a sudden, it wouldn't matter if you weren't much of a reader. This is because you know there are people who are right and people who are wrong about the best way of getting your son out of that cave. There are people whose ideas are true and there are people whose ideas are false and you would want to be able to know the difference. And spiritually speaking, friends, we are all in the exact same situation. We're all trapped on this planet, the air is running out, and we're all gonna die. And there is only one way to have eternal life. There is one gate, there is one road, and both are very narrow. And there are teachers who teach the truth about how to enter by the narrow gate and how to remain on the narrow road. And there are teachers who claim to be Christians and to speak on behalf of God who do not teach the truth. That is a brute reality. So the first reality of false teachers is that there are false teachers. And the second reality of false teachers is that they act, look, and sound just like sheep. The rest of verse 15 says this. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. You see, if false prophets and false teachers were easy to identify, no one would have to warn us about them. But they look and act and sound like sheep. 
Christians believe that God has broken into this world to help us understand our true condition, that we're facing death and judgment, and that God has graciously made a way of salvation for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. That's what Christians believe. But here's where it gets really complicated. Lots of people, including Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, could affirm what I just said. Yeah. Does that make them Christians? Some would say yes. But Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses also believe that Jesus is a created being. Which seems to not be who Jesus is. So even though they say they believe that God has broken into this world to help us understand our true condition, that we're facing death and judgment because of our sin, but that he has graciously made a way of salvation for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, the only difference is they mean different things by every single one of those words. Every one of them they mean something different by. So we need more than a surface-level understanding because it's really important who you think Jesus is. Later, Jesus will say this. He'll say, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So not only will they sound like true Christians, but they might even be able to perform great signs and wonders. They're going to act in ways that you and I would hope and expect a true teacher to act. Whew. And then Paul, talking to the elders at Ephesus, he says this, Even from your own number, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them, so be on your guard. So they will talk like Christians, they will act like Christians, even going so far as to be able to perform great signs and wonders to back up their teaching. They will rise out of our own communities. They will be people we know and trust. They will be ministers and elders in the Christian Reformed Church. They will have gone to Calvin This is the reality of false teachers. They might be powerful enough to perform great signs and wonders. They will arise out of our own communities. And what they say will sound right if we don't press further into what they mean by death and judgment and sin and salvation and grace and faith and Jesus. This is what Jesus means when he says false teachers will come in sheep's clothing because they will act, and they will sound, and they will look just like one of his sheep. But there's hope! There's hope! In John chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are his sheep, you can trust that you will hear his voice and you will be able to recognize false teachers, especially because Jesus is about to tell us how, okay? Which takes us to our second point, how to recognize false teachers. So if I hired a landscaper 
let's just say if you did. If you hired a landscaper for your house, and you came home later that day, and you found that he had planted the trees and the flowers in the wrong spot, this would be very annoying, uh, probably frustrating. But in the grand scheme of things, it would be no big deal, because he could simply come back tomorrow and move everything around. Uh, but if you required brain surgery, and you went to a brain surgeon who thought your brain was located behind your belly button, that would be a much bigger deal. This is why we usually put a lot more effort into recognizing good brain surgeons than we do into recognizing good landscapers. We're willing to do a lot more research and pay a lot more money for good brain surgeons than we are for good landscapers. My point is, probably very clear, but I'll say it anyway. Learning to recognize true and false Bible teachers is more like finding a brain surgeon than a landscaper. In fact, it's even more important because Jesus says this. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this warning here is not only for the false teachers themselves, but for anyone who would follow a false teacher. Because guess what? We tend to look like our teachers. Our fruit will eventually look like theirs. And a tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus tells us how we can recognize them. He says this. He says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? This is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Notice he brackets this by saying twice that we will recognize them by their fruit. And in the middle, he gives this very clear illustration, which we'll unpack in a minute. And then he gives that warning that we looked at. Because it's important. It's eternally important. It's more like brain surgery than landscaping. So in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says we will be able to recognize false teachers by their fruit, what he means is that a false teacher will not actually be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. He is not merciful. He is not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He has not repented of his sin and believed the good news of the kingdom. His obedience will be outward. It will not be from the heart as somebody who has been transformed by the grace of God and now wants to live a life of obedience out of gratitude for all that Christ has done for him. The scriptures are clear that when someone comes to faith in Jesus, a dramatic change takes place. Now, some people, that change is outwardly much more dramatic. For others, the experience or the outward display is much more subtle. But regardless of what the change looks like or feels like for any one person, the scriptures are clear that something profound happens when a sinner is truly convicted of their sin and then turns to Jesus for his grace and his mercy. It makes us into a different person with different loves and different desires and different hopes and different dreams 
This is why Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Just like when God spoke and created the world out of nothing, he makes you a child of God out of nothing. Your life before faith compared to your life after is just as different as non-existence is to existence. That's why Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So we are a new creation. We were dead and now we're alive. Other pictures from scripture to describe this. You are born again. You were blind and now you see. You had a heart of stone, but now you have a heart of flesh. You were a thorn bush, but now you are a fruit tree. All of these pictures tell us that when someone becomes a believer and enters the kingdom of heaven by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they truly become a different kind of thing. So a wolf can wear sheep's clothing, and from a distance, it will look like a sheep, but it's a wolf. You can tie grapes to a thorn bush and figs onto thistles, and for a very short season, you might be able to see and taste that fruit. The point Jesus is making is that it won't be long before it becomes very clear what kind of person someone actually is. So, what kind of fruit are we looking for? If we know that a true teacher will be one of these new creations, that they will actually be a fruit tree that can produce fruit rather than a thorn bush that's taped it on, what is this fruit going to look like? Now, I may sound like I'm repeating myself, because I am, but it's worth repeating. It will look like true belief and true behavior. Some teachers, though, might have all the dots of their theological I's dotted. They might have all their theological T's crossed. They might agree with everything written down in a historic, orthodox, Christian theology book. But they are full of anger and lust and lies. All of their praying and giving and fasting is for show so that other people can see them and think how great they are. They love money and trust it more than God. They're full of anxiety and judgmentalism. They don't pray because they're not dependent on God, and they don't really want his kingdom to come or his will to be done. This kind of person can look like a sheep, though, because they have all the right answers. And we can be drawn to them because of that. They seem to be so confident and willing to be bold and take a stand for what's right and for what's true. And we like leaders like that because we're so unsure a lot of the time. And we want to bask in the glow of their courage and their conviction because it makes us feel safe. False teachers on the other side of the coin might actually be filled with kindness and patience and empathy. They might be very thoughtful, well-read, full of knowledge and insight. They might seem and probably are 
very loving and accepting and gracious and giving. They could be the person out fighting for the poor and the marginalized. They might have all those outward fruits, but if they say something like, I believe God would save a good Buddhist if he is a sincere seeker of truth. Even though Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So if they're saying one thing, but Jesus says another, it doesn't matter what their character is, they are a false teacher. This is also the kind of teacher who would approve of sexual immorality as a way of helping someone deal with unwanted temptation. Instead of inviting them into a life of repentance and endurance by the power of the Holy Spirit, where true life is found, they give them the poisonous cup of approval to take away their suffering. Even though the Bible is clear that the sexually immoral person will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, we're even told not to deceive ourselves about that. Well, all I can really do this morning is kind of paint a picture of what it looks like to be on opposite poles of this spectrum. Because the best way to recognize a false teacher is to keep our eyes fixed on the truth, which takes us to our final point. The reason the gospel must be central. Uh, So we would be here all day long if I was trying to draw out all the different ways that false teachers manifest themselves in our society. Uh, There are, you know, the prosperity gospel people. There are the mystics. There's the um, fundamentalists. There's the progressives. There's all kinds of ways that false teaching manifests itself. And at this point in time, I actually want to plug our upcoming adult church school. Uh, In the fall, the first study that we're going to be doing is something called the American Gospel. And one of the, uh, we'll actually have a video that we'll show during the offering in a couple weeks, but one of the uh, uh, things about that is it, it just kind of shows you and helps us discern the difference between the false gospels in America right now. Uh, and then it gives a very clear picture of the true gospel. So I want to just put a little plug in for that. Uh, but the big idea here is that there can be false teachers who profess to believe all the right things, but their life and their behavior betray what they really believe. And there can also be false teachers who seem to have the character of a Christian, except the things they are teaching are so clearly opposite of what the Bible says that then no matter how good they seem, we have to declare them as a false teacher. And then there's a million different combinations on the spectrum in between. Uh, Some teachers tell us that we can know things that we can't possibly know. Other teachers tell us that we can't know things that the Bible is very clear about. Other teachers tell us that we can experience mystical things and ecstatic things that the Bible says, you know, we don't necessarily, uh, ex- we can't necessarily expect to experience. Other teachers will tell us that uh, we don't have to worry about sin or pain or suffering. There's just all kinds of, of wrong teachings out there all along the spectrum. But like I said, the best way we can be prepared to recognize a false teacher is not to first learn all the different ways false teaching can manifest itself. It's to put the work in so we know the true gospel, so we can recognize false beliefs, and we also know what the fruit of knowing the true gospel is, so we can recognize true behavior. 
Just like if you were the parent of a kid trapped in a flooded cave, you would be learning all about cave diving, oxygen levels, and probabilities of survival, because finding good teachers is more like finding a brain surgeon than a landscaper. Us knowing what the gospel is and what the gospel does is the very best way we can recognize the bad fruit of false belief and false behavior. Now, you may have heard this before, but um, federal agents, actually, when they're learning to recognize counterfeit money, they study real money. I, I looked it up, actually, yesterday. I was like, I wonder if that's even true. I've heard it so many times. It's actually true. That's what they do. But they don't just do that. That's where they start. They start there, and then they do begin to learn the different ways that people tend to counterfeit money. That's because when we are familiar with the real thing, then we are most equipped to recognize when something is false. When we know Jesus, we can better hear his voice. So remember what we said, that a Christian believes is that God has broken into this world to help us understand our true condition, that we are facing death and judgment because of our sin, but that he has graciously made a way of salvation for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. That is all true because the gospel is very simple, right? The good news is that God loves sinners so much through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. But who is God? What is our true condition? Whose fault is it that we are in this condition? What kind of death and judgment are we facing? What is sin? What is salvation? What is grace? Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to have faith in him? What does it mean to put my trust in his life, death, and resurrection? This is why, friends, we all have to be theologians. This is why, on a Sunday morning service, we recite the Apostles' Creed, because it is the foundation of answering these questions. This is why we sing songs that are theologically rich. This is why it's better not to sing songs all about how God makes me feel, and it's better to sing songs all about who God is and what he's done, because actually that makes us feel better. This is why we want to have a call to confession and a prayer of confession and all these things built into our worship service. So these big truths that we need to know to rightly understand the very simple gospel are built into us. Because Christians have different answers to all these questions than a false teacher or someone from a cult. And actually the answer to all these questions is in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, who's God? Well, he's our Father. That means he's infinitely close to us. But he's also in heaven. He couldn't be more far away at the same time. What is our true condition? Well, it's, we're, we're human beings who are required to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in order to be in His kingdom. But He's the one who defines what perfection looks like. Well, what does perfection look like? Well, it's anything, any action, any desire of the heart Jesus teaches us that is outside of God's law. So Jesus says that even fleeting desires like anger and lust that we didn't want and that we didn't choose make us guilty of murder and adultery, making us worthy of death and judgment. Well, what's death? It's being outside of his kingdom. What's judgment? It's hell. It's a place of eternal fire and torment. It's a place where trees that do not produce good fruit are cut up and thrown into. And we get all of this from the Sermon on the Mount. But God is gracious. Right? He gives us what we do not deserve. And he's merciful. 
He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He tells us that anyone who repents of their sin, which means we just agree that we are sinners as he defines it, and then we turn to him for mercy and forgiveness that he will forgive us, and then he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others because he knows we will struggle with sin for the rest of our life, and we will constantly need to come to him again and again. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. We come to him with nothing but our sin and he forgives us and welcomes us into the kingdom by grace alone. We put our faith in him and trust in him by simply believing his words and to believe his words about God and sin and death and judgment and salvation and grace and truth. That's what it is to believe the good news of the kingdom. And who is Jesus according to the Sermon on the Mount? He's God. Well, how do I know that? Well, because when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he doesn't say, but thus says the Lord. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So he's not speaking on behalf of God. He is speaking to us as God. And the fruit of false belief is anything that is different than all of this that Jesus clearly says on the Sermon on the Mount and everywhere else in the Bible. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he also teaches us what the gospel does. The fruit of being a new creation in Christ is that we become the kind of person who is merciful and meek and who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And when we recognize how far short we fall of that, we don't go and tape on grapes. We just turn again to him for forgiveness and for grace and for mercy. And as we do, we become the kind of person who hears that we are murderers and adulterers and liars but that God, by his grace, is making us into faithful peacemakers who love the truth and who pray for our enemies. Christians are people who enter the kingdom by the narrow gate when we put our trust in Jesus, but we also walk the narrow road by trusting Jesus every moment of our lives for the rest of our lives. And no Christian and no teacher will perfectly embody all the good fruit that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount But a good teacher will be honest when he fails and he will repent. Because we have nothing to lose. Because we're already in the kingdom. We will be those who take the log out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly to remove the speck of sawdust from our neighbor's eye. We will see ourselves as bigger sinners than anyone else. And so a false teacher will deny the gospel by denying true belief He will say God is different than God clearly says he is or that God doesn't require a certain kind of obedience that he clearly says he does or he will deny the gospel by his own character, the way he lives his life. And the best way to recognize them by their bad fruit and false belief and false behavior is to be so soaked in what the good news is and what it will do in the life of someone who embraces it by faith that it's just obvious. That it's just obvious. Because you are one of his sheep. And you only listen to his voice. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're so grateful for this reminder that we need to be discerning. Father, help us to have such a big view of you and what you've done that it lifts up our gaze from ourselves. 
Help us to not look to gospels that try to make us feel better or make us believe things that are not true, but keep our eyes fixed on the true gospel, which has you and Christ at the center and which draws us out of ourselves and gives us a vision for your glory and for your kingdom and for eternity with you, God. May that be our story and may that be the work that is done at Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.